You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. I have a question for you today, and that is if you knew, <coughs> excuse me, if you knew that today was going to be your last day on this earth, how differently would you live? I, I know this is a question that we love to ask, but we don't really like to answer. Because, um, because obviously, you know where it's kind of going because people are like, well, then you should live like that every day, right? Uh, but I, I do want you to entertain this thought for a second. Just kind of if today or if you knew you had one week, let's put it that way. Let's, let's give you a little extra time on earth. Thank you. You get seven more days. How would you spend the last seven? How many of you would quit your job like immediately? Okay. Like if you had seven days to live, you'd quit your job. Who would keep their job? Yeah, well, you're a minister, so that's all good. Hey, I want to, by the way, I have a friend of mine, uh, Tynan, and his wife, Lydia, and his family are visiting with us today, and they are missionaries heading out to Mexico this fall. And uh, um, we'll get to know them a little bit later in the future, but I wanted to point them out. This is, They're here together as family for the first time. Uh, yeah. Tynan, you've been here before, but your, your esposa has not, right? All right. So, anyhow. Uh, let's just say, so he said he, he wouldn't quit his job. So I understand that. I wouldn't either. I, I you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll die right here on the platform. Uh, I've actually known some preachers that have died, uh, on the platform, the Bible college that we used to go to the guy who's the president of the college. Um, he actually had a heart attack and died on the spot while he was preaching in one of the school services. Crazy. That's where I want to go. No, it's not. So you have a week left to live. How would you spend your week? How many of you try to go on a trip really fast? Like if you're would, like, how many of you would spend all your money? <laughs> if you, I was just curious. All right. So you point is you'd probably live different. You'd probably love different. You'd definitely treat people different. There's this sense that uh, there's a lot of clarity when you know that the possibility of your life might be coming to an end. Um, you know, if it was my last day, <coughs> Excuse me, if I knew that this was my last day and this was my last sermon, if I knew that this week was my week, my appointment with destiny, my dad destiny was this week, um, I would preach differently uh, today. Maybe I'd probably preach a sermon a little bit like today. Uh, If it was my last sermon, what would I preach? What would I say? Well, this is kind of where we're at today. This is a, a, the end today of a, of a summer-long journey through the lives of three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Today's the final installment of the Kings Trilogy, the, the, the big ending to what is, uh, you know, 120 years of the great United Kingdom of Israel, because after this kingdom, they divide into two and 400 years of total mess ups and screw ups and recovery and mess up again. And then the, the, the nation is destroyed. Um, today is about a guy who had it all. But at the end of his life, he realized he had nothing at all. And he realized that nothing really mattered at all except for one thing. Uh, this epic story has covered nine different books of the Bible. In these nine different books of the Bible, uh, we saw Saul's life, we saw David's life, we saw Solomon's life. And I want to encourage you that this, this epic story is a large portion of the Old Testament. So what we did was three months, and not really two and a half months, of, of a story that could have easily been a year-long series. So uh, go back and read these portions of the Bible this year. Now that you have a better understanding of the direction in the background, we've been talking about Saul. He served God for two years out of 40. After two years, he was impeached by God and he remained on the throne for 38 years in rebellion. And then David, uh, he came up after Saul. He was anointed king as a young man. 15 years later, he became king and he served for 40 years And he had an unwavering relationship with God, even though he struggled in personal areas of his life. He never gave up pursuing the heart of God. And now Solomon, Solomon's son, 
uh, second oldest son, he brings in a golden era of the kingdom of Israel. I mean, Solomon built cities, he built houses, he built palaces, he built gardens, he built parks and irrigation systems, he built public projects, and most famous of all, he built the temple of God, which we talked about last week. He had it all, and he did it all. And this is what it says in 1 Kings eleven fourteen. It says, each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. That's a lot. That's a big salary each year. That was his yearly take home. All right, 25 tons of gold. This did not include his additional revenue from his books that he sold. And no, I'm just kidding. From uh, <laughs> this did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. And then it goes on to talk about his elaborate military. And they, they didn't just have like regular armor, you know, bulletproof armor. They had like gold armor and gold-plated armor. And then uh, verse 18, it says, Then the king made a huge throne. He decorated it with ivory and overlaid it with fine gold. And the throne had six steps and a round back. And there armrests on both sides of the seat and the figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. And there were also 12 other lions, one standing each uh, on each end of the six steps and no other throne in all the world could be compared to this. If you remember Thor and, uh, you know, you got that throne image in Thor, that giant throne room doesn't quite compare to the throne of Solomon. Verse 21, all of King Solomon's uh, drinking cups were solid gold. Could you imagine that? It's like, man, those are two-hander cups. <laughs> so heavy, <laughs> you know. You think like glass money? I mean, I prefer plastic at home. <laughs> gold, no thank you. His cups were solid gold. They weren't plated. They were solid gold, as were the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. I mean, he had more than one palace, and all of his utensils were, they were not made of silver, for that was the poor man's gold, uh, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. Nutty. Uh, the king had a fleet of trading ships of Tarshish uh, that sailed with Hiram's fleet. And once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Some translations say baboons rather than peacocks. We're not really sure. You know, baboons have these like really colorful hind ends. So that's why some translations say baboons and others think that they were talking about the big flowing feathers of the peacock. So um, apes and peacocks. So more likely it was, it was peacocks. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on the earth. It goes on to say he had 1,400 gold chariots. He had 12,000 imported horses. Talk about a garage. It was packed with some serious horsepower. The horses were like the cars of his age. The chariots were a status symbol. He had 1,400 gold chariots and 12,000 import, not just backyard horses. We're talking high-end Arabian, Egyptian imported horses. People of every nation came to get counsel from him, bringing him even more gold and silver weapons, animals, and women. It seems Solomon had it all. And he did. He had it all. And that was his problem. How could such a wise man not see the fall that was before him? He was a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. And he did. This was, unfortunately, a part of Solomon's story that is very, very, very bad. And it continued throughout the next 400 years because what he brought to the kingdom was incredible sin. Even though he was a wise man, he became one of the greatest fools of the Bible. At the end of his life, he speaks to his son in Ecclesiastes, which is a a book that he wrote for his son, Jeroboam or Rehoboam. And Ecclesiastes 1, he says, these are the words of the teacher, King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem, talking about himself. He says, everything is meaningless says the teacher, completely meaningless. So what brought him to this place of a guy who had everything? How could a guy who had everything and know everything 
and be the wisest man on the earth, end up being one of the greatest fools of all time and end his life in such deep, deep depression. Well, it's the fall of Solomon and he orchestrated his own failure. His own failure. Solomon wanted what he wanted and he reaped a tempest storm because what he got was a life that was empty. So what I want to talk to you today is, first of all, I want to talk about the fall, the great fall of Solomon. And then we're going to talk about his search, the things that he spent his whole life searching for that left him empty. So let's talk about this great fall. First of all, I want to think about this a feature of the Bible that separates it from other uh, ancient narratives and books is it's, it's brutal honesty when it comes to some of its greatest, most heroic figures. The Bible is really set apart that way because Solomon is one of those brutally honest failures that could have been one of the greatest men, but he ended up being one of the biggest mess-ups. So let's take a look. Here's, first of all, this is one of his big problems. This is number one, his complete disregard of God's word. He knew God's word. He grew up in God's word. Uh, David pursued God. And no matter how many mistakes and no matter what happened in David's life, he never gave up on the Lord. He never pursued false gods. He never disobeyed uh, the Lord. It was more or less struggles with sin. And he was quick to repent. David trusted God. Solomon, however, he knew God's word and completely disregarded it. A clear willingness to compromise his walk with God with the world that he wanted to be a part of. First Kings 11 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women besides the Pharaoh's daughter. That's his first wife. He married women from Moab, Amnon, uh, Edom, Sidon, and a and women from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their God. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He deliberately disregarded and disobeyed what he knew as a fact, what God said. Some of you are guilty of the exact same. You know exactly what God's word says about specific things in your life. And you somehow know better. Somehow you have got a plan figured out. It's old. It's archaic. It's, you know, it's old fashioned. It's, you know, it's, it's man. It's a paper. It's, you know, it's, this is a new dawn, a new day. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. You know. It's it's a new age. I mean, this is hey, this is hey. I'm a contemporary Christian, and some of you you completely disregard and deliberately disobey what you know for a fact God says about things in our life. That was a big problem with Solomon as well. Here's another issue: he had an unhealthy sexual obsession. He had an unhealthy sexual obsession. We're going to find that the Solomon had, you could almost describe him as a sex addict. This was someone who didn't just struggle with lust. This was someone who completely revolved his life around sexual activity. This is what it says in 1 Kings 2b. It says, talking about these women, he says, yes, Solomon insisted on loving them anyways. And this is important because you know that he's not talking about contractual marriages only, Because you don't contractually marry a foreign wife just to to say that you love them. See, he was actually having sexual relationships with many of these women. Not committed love. This is complete, absolute self-indulgence. He said he had 700 wives of royal birth. That's the contract marriages. You see, if he had children with these women from other countries, then their children and their grandchildren ensured safety from foreign attack. It was a very common uh, method of ensuring agreements with neighboring countries. He had 700 royal uh, wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. A concubine is like a wife but has no wife privileges. All they have is the sex privileges. This concubines are pure sexual objects. So he had over a thousand women that he had sexual relationships. In fact, 
It says, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. This was more than just politics. This was obsessive sexual pursuits. You know, I've seen uncontrolled sexual desires shipwreck faith all the time. People who just can't rein in their sexual habits, behaviors, and addictions. That they're not talking to anybody. They're not seeking the Lord's help. It's a complete disregard of God in this area. Because you know better. You want to fulfill what you desire. And before you know it, you find yourself so far from God. Your faith has been shipwrecked, as Paul says in Galatians. Let me tell you something. That was a serious issue of Solomon. It will be a serious issue with you unless you learn to rein this in because this was a man who had a great call of God on his life, but he had a terrible sexual obsession. Here's another fall for Solomon. Another fault that he had is he had, a, he had an incredible slow slide to idolatry. Idolatry is when you place anything on the throne of your life above Christ. And for us, idolatry means a job, a career, anything that takes the throne of the center of our praise and worship and time and attention other than the affections and worship of God in our life. When a spouse or our children or a career or school sits on the throne of our life and we bow down to that, it becomes an idol to our life. When we revolve our life around objects other than the Lord or people other than the Lord, they are idols. Now, Solomon literally had idols that he bowed down to. Starting as a political solution over the years, it turned into a slow slide to idol worship. In verse 4, it says, in Solomon's old age, this tells us it was a matter of time. It was over the course of years. And by the way, we know that in his old age, don't shout me down, here means in his 50s. So according, if you're in your 50s, according to the Bible, you're old. I just think that's kind of funny. I don't think you're old because I'm almost 50. <laughs> so I think you're pretty young. I don't think you're old until 100. Yeah. <laughs> it says in Solomon's old age, his 50s, they turned to his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God. And his father, David, as his father, David, had been. This is what makes me sick to my stomach. This is some of the most horrific things you could ever read about somebody. Solomon worshipped Ashereth, which is also known as uh, Ashtar. Uh, She was the goddess of sex and war, fertility and violence. Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidians. And Molech, who was to be her uh, husband, Uh, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. I wanted to tell you something about these two gods, Ashereth and Molech. Uh, They they participate, their worship experiences include these massive sex practices and orgies. That was a part of their sexual worship to these gods of fertility and violence and war. So they would do these sexual practices on the side of the fertility And then on the side of the war, Molech, they would sacrifice infants and children. They would make these giant statues of Molech, the Ammonites would, and and he had a furnace in his belly and in his lap. And he would have his arms set out, and they would set infants and children in the arms of this god, this idol, and as its belly burned these children and these infants alive. They would pull a switch, dropping the children to the furnace of the belly. And this was a normal practice for Molech worship. And what we find is knowing that this is the practice, Solomon began to worship, bow down and honor and involve himself in these practices. Now, we don't know if he ever sacrificed a child or not, but that was the customs of that religion. And it it goes, in this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. He began to worship and honor and sing 
and pay homage to these idols. False gods moved right into Solomon's backyard. Solomon found his heart turning from God's plan for his life. And he not only permitted it, but he actually facilitated it with state funds. What he began to do is take the tithe of the money and the, the taxes of the community and build these temples for these idols all over Israel in the high places of the land. It means in the local uh, towns where there was a mountain or a, a hill in these high places, he would build altars and idols. And it was a slow slide. First, he disregarded God. Then he allowed that sin. Then he approved of that sin. Then he participated in that sin. I want to ask you, what are the idols and the ideals you have allowed to move into your mind and life? Because if they've moved in, if you've acknowledged or accepted that they're okay, or you ignore them or disregard that they're part of your life, it's the beginning of a slow slide for you as well. Verse 7, it says, On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, who's known as the Destroyer. And part of his worship was human sacrifice. And another for Moloch, another temple, the detestable god of the Ammonites, who did the child sacrifices. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. What I find amazing about this verse is not only he was, was he wise who became foolish, someone who allowed this to slide into idolatry by First of all, disregarding God's word, that's the first step to the slide, is that this was a man who experienced tremendous encounters with God. He's one of the few people in the Bible that God appeared to. When God appears in the flesh before people, that's called a theophany. As someone who's a Christian, the Bible says that God, he has made himself known in Jesus, the Colossians says he is the Godhead in bodily form. So as a Christian, I believe that all these theophanies, all these God appearances in the Old Testament are Christophanies, which are Christ in the flesh pre his uh, incarnate when he came to earth as a man. So that means Solomon had an amazing encounter with God, saw him, and he still disregarded disobeyed and turned away from God. Some of you, you've grown up in church. Some of you have never been in church, and this is new for you, but some have grown up in church. They've seen God in powerful ways in their life, and they still end up on that slow slide to idolatry. Because of this, he grew soft, dull, and spiritually stupid. He had turned away from the Lord, and because of this, war after years of peace, returned to Israel and the kingdom was to be split. God appeared to him again uh, through, uh, he didn't appear to him, he sent a prophet. And the prophet said, Solomon, because of your sin, when you die, this kingdom will be split in two. Out of honor for your father, David, God will not do it in your lifetime, but he will do it in your child's lifetime. And right after Solomon died, the kingdom was split in two. He grew to trust himself rather than the Lord. Here's the last thing. He had a fixation with himself. We're going to find as we look for this search that he was on and the things that he discovered, he had an amazing self-centered fixation. He had not just things and objects and people on the throne. He had himself on the throne of his life. The universe revolved around himself, and he completely, completely pursued in total disregard of others what he wanted to do. He didn't care the damage. He didn't care the pain. He didn't care about the, uh, the struggle that it would cause. He was self-centered, and that is a sin because it hurts and destroys your view of God, and you become your own idol. Several protested Solomon's lifestyle, 
with high taxes because he taxed the living daylights out of Israel because his 25 tons of gold was not enough. And all of that gold and silver and precious jewels that he received every year was not enough. He taxed the living daylights out of Israel and began to use their taxes to build the temples to his wives. They began to protest this. We know this in the next section of Kings as they begin to grumble about his taxation. Solomon did nothing to respond to change or to help others in his life. As he was getting richer, his country was getting poorer. Too busy to live Uh, too busy living his obsessive, compulsive, addictive lifestyle to care about his kingdom or his people. He was always on another honeymoon or building another vineyard or satisfying his lust. So eventually an officer of his named Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. He was chased out of town and he hung out in Egypt until Solomon died. And when he came back, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had a war with each other. And the kingdom was split into just as it was told Solomon would happen. And from then on, the, the kingdom has never, in the course of thousands of years, the kingdom has never been a united kingdom ever since. There was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Israel has, as a, as a people group, those, uh, it was a, there was a, there was Judah. And then that's all that Solomon's family got was one tribe, Judah. And then the other 11 ended up going north with, with uh, Jeroboam and formed an 11-tribe nation. And then there was a tribe called Benjamin that just kind of teeter-tottered. Every other generation, they would go with, other, with, with two different ones. Well, eventually, they were gone and they never returned. So with all that, I want you to know this. Solomon, though he fell, he fell forward. Because what happened is Solomon had his eyes open. See, this is a message for two groups of people. This is a message for someone who is older and you feel like you have messed up everything in your life. You feel like you have gone too far, done too much and experienced too much pain and run too far away. It's never too far. And this is a message for the young person. As we're going to find out, Solomon says, it's not too late for you, young person. Don't wait till you're old before it's too late. Turn to him now. So let's take a look at this. He eventually returned to God writing what he learned in Ecclesiastes. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to do a flyover of the things that he was searching for. Ecclesiastes 1.1, it says, These are the words of the teacher, King David, son, who ruled in Jerusalem. That's Solomon. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. This shows the, the complete depression and, and sorrow that Solomon had found itself. He says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises, the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the river and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Around and round and around it goes. Life is tiresome and unfulfilling. It's, it's like you're on a treadmill your whole life. It's just another day. And when you squeak through another day, there's another day to squeak through. Once you work to the weekend, there's another weekend to work to. Verse 9, it says, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new. But actually, it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past And in the future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. He says, you're going to die. And all those great things that you think you've done years from now, people won't even remember who you are. They'll, even if you're a great historical figure, you'll just be an answer in a test. No one will remember you. Solomon was searching most of his life. His search took him farther and farther from God. And then he woke up a completely broken man and he found the answer. Ecclesiastes 2.17, he says, so I hated life. Remember, this is a man who had everything. 
He had everything you could imagine. He had amassed a tremendous amount of wealth. He had more women in his life than we could imagine. He had possessions and cars, esteem, people from around. He had a reputation. He was famous. But he hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, he says. All of its meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Before he found his way back, let's take a look at where his search took him. So what I've got is I've got his collection. This, is, this represents his tub of collections. The things that he has collected over the years that symbolize everything that he has ever looked for. And uh, let's take a look at this first one. The first one is a search for, well, it was a search for answers. And he looked, let's see, in his tub that I pulled out of Solomon's attic, he had knowledge. Now, let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with some of the things that we're going to talk about today. But they're never going to be the things that will fulfill and give you peace in your spirit and in your life. There's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong wrong with reading and growing in knowledge and and growing in wisdom and, and, and becoming smarter. That's a good thing. But Solomon had amassed so much knowledge and wisdom, he found and realized that even though as much as he knew, it only left him empty. There's not enough books you could read that will ever fill that void that you have. This is what he said in Ecclesiastes 1. He says, the teacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. He says, I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've been, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to understanding of this wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He says, man, the more answers I got, then the more questions I had. And the more questions I had, my obsession with knowledge and answers led me down a path that just never, 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 never quit. Ecclesiastes 8, 17, he says, I realize that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. Ecclesiastes 12, 12 says, my child, let me give you some further advice. He says, be careful for writing books is endless. There's always going to be something to learn and to write about and much study wears you out. Now, this is a word to some of you college students who who are finding your Savior in college right now. I've been there. Much study will wear you out. (laughs) And there's always going to be another paper to write. There's going to be another thesis that will be required. There will always be another assignment. And again, education is not wrong or bad or sinful. But if you're looking for knowledge and education to give you some sense of identity and peace, it will leave you in more grief. Knowledge and education books will not bring peace inside. It can leave you exhausted, empty, and searching for more. Wisdom and knowledge is not the answer that we are looking for. Let's see what else Solomon has in his tub here. Uh, Here we go. Um, This is the search for happiness. This is the search for pleasure. This is what he says, and uh, I'll explain what these uh, tickets have to do with it. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is, is silly. Basically, those who never are serious, you're going to find your life is meaningless. He goes, what good does it do to seek pleasure? He says, I had many beautiful concubines, that's sexual pleasures. 
And I had everything a man could desire, possessions, anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. He denied himself nothing. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless. I've got these tickets to represent that sometimes we we feel like our life is, is how many tickets can I collect? How many rides can I ride? How, how, many, how many bonus, uh, you know, coupons and trips? How many things can I, can I accumulate? And, and so we save up everything that we've done and, and, and we rely upon these experiences and we think, you know what? There's one more event, one more vacation, one more girl or one more guy, one more relationship, uh, one more experience. One more date, one more event, one more ride. And all of a sudden, we just, we're just, it's all falling to the ground. And there's nothing that we can do that will ever, in the pursuit of pleasure, bring us peace. Because though pleasure is fun for a season, for a moment, it is fleeting. It will always leave you looking for more pleasure. And he realized this, that this pursuit of pleasure was meaningless. Here's the next thing. He had the search. I'm going to call it the search for serenity. This is what he says. Let me see what I got here in this tub. Let's see if you can guess what. Well, here, let me read it first. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. He says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives, he lived the ultimate YOLO life. The you only live once life. He did it all. In fact, he says here, he said, look what I did. He says, I uh, tried to cheer myself with wine. And, and uh, what I've got, this is, is this is a sense of a search for serenity. There's a, the escape of drugs and alcohol. This, this attempt to find escape through chemicals, the chemical escape. He's like, you know what? I, I, I'm finding people are wearing me out. These pleasures are making me tired. So you know what? I'm just going to embrace getting drunk, embrace getting crazy, embrace life. You know, carpe diem, you only live once. YOLO, let's do this. And, you know, a lot of us, we do the same. And we look, maybe not the YOLO life is not our thing, but what we do is we embrace chemicals to replace the escape that we look for in life. We find jobs unsatisfying, work is unsatisfying, relationships are unsatisfying. Maybe this will bring some satisfaction or maybe some pills, maybe some drugs, maybe some narcotics. Maybe there's something that can basically mask the pain that I have, mask the experiences that I'm feeling. He looked to alcohol Some of you do as well, only to wake up with a hangover and a black eye. The sleeping pill with no rest, the nerve pills with still no peace of mind, drugs, narcotics, drunkenness. They can't bring peace on the inside. They might help alleviate the symptoms, but chemicals are never the answer to solve the problem. Solomon knew this as he was searching Here's another thing is, is I've got, uh, mm, let's see what I got here. Here we go. You know what this is? Sweet. It's the new iPhone and a pair of shoes. And I've got some, a jade necklace. This is real jade. And these are real pearls. This is a pearl necklace. This is the search for self-worth. It's called Materialism. And I, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the phone. There's nothing wrong with these items. These are my wives, all right? My wife's like, now they're going to be looking to see if I'm going to wear those. You will. Those are the Ted, those are the materialism shoes that Ted used. There's nothing wrong with an iPhone. There's nothing wrong with a nice pair of shoes. But you know what we have is we have this search for self-worth through material possessions. This is what Solomon said. He said this. He said... Turn my page here. He said this, Ecclesiastes 2, 4, it says, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. And I made gardens and parks and 
filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. And I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. And I brought, I bought slaves, and both men and women, and, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any other kings that had lived in Jerusalem before me. He said, man, I made great things. I had great things. I planted great gardens. I had great pools. I had incredible sweet cars in my garage. I owned animals. I collected great possessions. Everything that I had to make myself happy, the possessions that I acquired, the things that I worked to achieve, to build, to have, to own, to possess, the material possessions that I thought would somehow give me some self-value and worth, so it only left me meaningless. Now, today, I, I just a side note, I picked the iPhone, the new iPhone, because it is right now something that people really want. And um, um, the iPhone cult, um, or the Apple cult, uh, is a... <laughs> I, I couldn't use my Android. Uh, oh, it's down here. I use it as my clock. I couldn't use my Android because people are like, oh, it's a phone. But when you say iPhone, iPhone. <laughs> there's, some, there's, there's a mystique about the Apple products. And, you know... Uh, by the way, all you uh, Apple users, Android users like myself, we only bring it up because we like to watch you get all like crazy about it. Because if you start dissing Androids, you're like, eh, so what? You start dissing Apple, oh, no, 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 no. Just thought it was funny. All right. Because it's a status symbol. It really is. And there's nothing wrong with having one. But what Solomon realized is that if you're looking for that to bring you value and self-worth, it will leave you empty. Things and toys are terrible measuring sticks of success. He that has the biggest toys and the nicest toys dies too. Material possessions are not the answer for peace. Here's another thing that he had. He had the search for, ah, here we go. It was the search for power and position. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, this is a a, a little name tag. I'm going to write boss on it put that on because that's where some of you are pursuing your dreams to be a boss to be a manager and man if i could man if i was boss things would be different around here if i was in control or here's a better one let me put this one on it says pastor if i was pastor sermons would be shorter If I was pastor, worship would be shorter. If I was pastor, worship would be longer. If I was pastor, we would be in a building. If I was pastor, I would not allow shorts on the stage. If I was pastor, I would tuck my shirt in. If I was pastor, I would just be better. Some of you guys, you think if you were just the boss at work or here at church or whatever, you think that somehow your search for control, that's the next one, will bring you peace. This search for control, this search for position and power, Solomon said, ended up meaningless for him. That's what it, because some of you are like, man, the, the answer to your serenity at work in life would be if you had different management or if you were the manager. This is what it said in Ecclesiastes 2.18. It says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth. I must leave others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world, all my leadership skills, all my plans, all my agendas, all my systems, everything that I worked so hard to accomplish Well, when I'm gone, somebody else will take the reins. And that power, that influence, that leadership, eventually even our ideas will be changed. Power is not the answer. He goes on to say, some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their work and their anxiety? It's a rhetorical question. It's nothing. There are days of labor 
of leadership are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Some of you, you take work home with you right up here. Some of you, you can't stop thinking about it. You're obsessing over it. It's all meaningless. This, this attempt to control people, this attempt to control your life will lead you to a place where you despise the very things in life that God's put your hands to do. Power is not the answer. Here's the next one. Is uh, This one's a simple one. Is uh, just my checkbook because this is the search for security. Riches and investments. Some of us think, man, you know what? If I could just, if I could just save up enough money, put enough money in my IRA, if I could just put enough money in my Roth investments, or if I could just start one, if I could just, if I just had money left over to put in the bank, if I just had, you know, if I had the ability to invest in some gold, if I had the ability to, to, to buy a house with some equity into it, we're thinking investments, investments, portfolios, some of you guys that's so far removed from our life. You know, the 80s, at the beginning of the 80s, 60% of the population in the United States had a savings account. After the 80s, where there was this, this explosion of materialism pushed on us, now it's an average of like 5% of people in the United States have a savings account. It's pretty bad. The majority of people in the United States right now have debt, that they are just barely paying the minimum on. Well, some of you think, man, if I just had investment plan, if I just had a way to get out of this, I would have security. This is what, this is what Psalm says in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. He says, I saved it. I haven't found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, It was all meaningless, like chasing the wind. We seek a life free of worry, free of fear, free of anxiety, a retirement, a nest egg, a treasury, a portfolio. How much is enough? Because some of you, that's all you, you're leaving your family in the dust behind you as you pursue security in finances. This is what he says, Ecclesiastes 4.13, better a poor man that are a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king, talking about himself, who no longer knows how to heed a warning. He says again in Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Chapter 11, he goes on to talk about how you can't take it with you. So why don't you... Be generous and share it with others and enjoy it with others. Your achievements and your bank accounts are not the answer. Here's the last thing that he says that he pursued, and I've got it in here represented by some movies and some CDs because he had the search for distractions through entertainment. Got some uh, video game, uh, Blu-ray, and then some... uh, DVD. Who, who buys DVDs? It's only Blu-rays now, right? I'm an HD nerd. If it's not HD, I don't want it in my house type of thing. And uh, But I find that this is something I need to release to the Lord. <laughs> we got CDs. We, you know, iTunes now is kind of taking over the world, downloading music. But these represent a search for distractions. Because what we find is in life, life is crazy. Marriage is crazy. Your kids are crazy. School is wearing you out. Job has beaten you down. Put on your jam, baby. That's my jam. Life is good. Until three minutes later when the song's over. Push repeat. It's good again. Push. Life is good for three-minute increments. Until you're sick of the song and then you need a new jam. Or until you beat that game, until you've seen that movie. Man, you've been waiting all year for that movie. Man, this is going to be so good. It's man, man, you see who's in it. You know who's writing it. I can't wait. You get to it. It was okay. It was all right. Not what I expected. Six months of obsessing over that distraction to bring you some sense of direction in your life. And you're like, it's okay. And then you can't wait to own it, only to watch it maybe one more time and stick it on your shelf. What you thought was going to be the answer to your weekend, to your week, to your year, to your month, only left you wanting more. 
See, Solomon had the same problem. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes. He says this in uh, verse 280. He says, I hired wonderful singers, both men and women. He said, man, I gathered the most skilled elite musicians of the day. Man, I put the best of the best in front of me. If I could put entertainment in front of me that could blow you away, he said, I had it. I had everything a man could desire. I want you to know Solomon had a great, rich heritage in music. His dad was a great musician and songwriter, and Solomon himself was a musician. In fact, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, which are songs in the Bible. He was known to be a musician. He played the harp, and he wrote songs. And this music and this theater is entertaining, but life is more than acting. And when the stage is is cut, when the lights are faded, and when the game is over, and when the credits roll, you're still empty. Verse 11 says, But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Solomon uses I, me, mine, myself at least 59 times in chapter 2 alone. Read Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and circle them all because he had such an incredible focus on self and his destruction in searching for answers. So here's what I want to wrap up with this idea is that that was his search. It was a devastating search that left him empty all along the way. Again and again, he says it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's useless. Are we looking for our purpose? Are we seeking his purpose, God's purpose? Has your life lost its meaning? Maybe you are searching right now through one of these areas. Maybe you are just infatuated with this life that you you seize the day. Who cares about tomorrow? Destroy every relationship because you're living for right now. That's what will ultimately happen. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. Follow the will of God. Maybe you're looking for answers in a bottle or in a prescription, or in a narcotic, or maybe you're trying to find solace in knowing more education. Education, you might think, is the answer. It's not. It will only leave you with more questions. There's not anything inherently wrong with these things. In fact, Solomon says that there's a time maybe for some of these things even to experience and to take pleasure in and to share them with others. But if you're looking for them to be the peace and the hope and the pursuit of your life, if they're on the throne of your life, he says, then you will leave your life empty. Solomon fell hard, controlled by his thirst for power, politics, pleasure, and possessions. He ended up in deep depression. In his despair, he found his first love, the Lord. And this is how he ended Ecclesiastes, the very last thing he wrote in his life, Ecclesiastes 12. And this is just a few of the verses out of it. Ecclesiastes 12, when he says, don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Young person, you've got your whole life ahead of you, he says. You've got a lot of pleasure to experience. You've got a lot of knowledge to gain. You've got a lot of things and possessions that you will acquire in life, he says, but don't forget you're in the excitement of having a big life in front of you. Don't forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow before you grow old and say life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. He says, remember your creator before your body, your desires, and those around you grow old and weak and you begin to fade away. Remember him before it's too late. Everything is, he says, everything else other than the Lord is meaningless, says the Lord, completely meaningless. He says, that's the whole story. Here is my final conclusion. This is Solomon's words. Verse 13, fear God and obey his commands. This is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And then that's the end of Ecclesiastes, the very last words of a man who fell forward. What are you going to do? When this life is over, what will your life's story say about you? 
I know what I want my story to be. I know what I want my story and life to be about. We don't have a life that is forever. This life is frail. The Bible says this life is a vapor and it's gone. This week in Life Teams, we're going to talk about what it means to, to live life like you only have 30 days to live. And we're going to talk about how to get the most out of life and honor God with it. So be in your life teams this week. Man, when I'm dead and gone, I want people to say, man, he loved Jesus. He loved his wife. He loved his kids. He loved people. That's what I want my life to say. I want my story to not be, man, he... (laughs) He gave his life to God at the end of his life. Thank God. But he destroyed people all the way there. If you're old, it's not too late to fall forward on your knees and meet Jesus. If you're young, don't wait till it's too late. Everything Solomon built was destroyed. All that gold was stolen. All those possessions were taken away. Every building that he built was torn down. Even the temple of the Lord was torn down flat to the ground and all of its possessions, all of them are gone because this life is fleeting. In all of his searching, he found what he was looking for. Number one, fear God. And number two, walk in his ways. When you fear God, that means you you humbly understand his position in your life. It means you understand his greatness with with fear and reverence and honor, a life of worship is the one who fears the Lord and the one who walks in his ways, one who obeys the word of God, one who understands that it's not always easy to obey, but it's always for your good to obey. Even when it disagrees with your opinions, you will walk in the ways of the Lord. Matthew twelve forty two. Jesus referring to royalty that traveled to see Solomon. Her name is Sheba, Queen of Sheba. He says this, she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. He was talking about himself. If the queen of Sheba would travel the ends of the earth to find a man who was a failure, How far will you travel to meet the king of kings who will never fail you? How far will you go to walk, to live, to pursue, to know Christ? Where will that travel take you? I want to end with this video and then I want to read a verse and pray for you. It's a short video, but I want you to realize if you, like Solomon, found yourself bound in the chains of the search, Jesus will set you free. If it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for Jesus, I'd be lost, scared, and alone. I would have no purpose. If it weren't for Jesus, I wouldn't know my true worth. My lust would still be consuming me. I'd still be empty and broken inside. I'd be in jail or dead. I would still be carrying a load of guilt and shame. My life would still be filled with discontent. I'd still be filled with loneliness and despair. But because of Jesus, but because of Jesus, I've found hope. I have found a purpose. I have found my value in Christ. I have found freedom. Because of Jesus, I have been healed. I'm alive. I have found peace. I have found contentment. I have found joy. I have been forgiven. Forgiven for all my for all my sins. I have been set free. All because of Jesus.
In Mark 8:34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? For what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I want to give you a chance, this last installment of our King series, to bow to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I believe there are people here that, God, they've been in pursuit their whole life. And some of them, they've just started that pursuit. And before before they're torn apart by it, God, this is, this is the day for them to follow you, to fear God to walk in your ways, to follow Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I would like to make the switch from me being on the throne and to my kids and my husband or my job or my career or goal to putting Jesus on my throne of my heart. Let's pray. If that's you today and you say, you know what? I want to begin a new walk with God today. Then then let me pray for you today. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. And uh, with your own words, just kind of say something like it if you want, or you can use your own prayer altogether. It's not a magic prayer, but it's a prayer that will help you make that confession of faith. So let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you that you are alive. Forgive me. I've been searching in the wrong places for life. When all along, it's been you. Go ahead and tell him, Jesus, here's my life. Here's my pursuits. Here's my dreams. Here's my possessions. Here's my my hopes, my marriage, my kids, my education. God, here's my job. Here's my work. God, be king. Be the king. down for a minute. If that was you today, and you say, you know what? That was me today. I started fresh with God. I want you to raise your hand. Just let me know. Heads, heads are down. I'd love to see. Amen. Who else? There's like hands all over. Thank you, Father, that you worked in our heart and our life today. God, help us to be those that bow to the feet of Jesus alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the extras to come forward, and uh, Sean's going to do some announcements, but I have a funny, not a funny, but a, a good story to tell you, we're running a little bit long today because, well, because we are. I had a long message, so there. Um, yeah, and I saw our time, so I had a little uh, giveaway on the, the on the movie time. Uh, but I was, uh, last week, I went to make the deposit at the bank. We, we bank at Chase, our church does. And uh, they know I'm a pastor there, so I was handing in the deposit and the guy's like, oh, so how's your church going? And so I was talking about our church, and how's it going? And, and I asked him if he goes to church. He goes to his church out in Rockwall. It's a small church that meets in a, in a, in a, like a, a retail center. And he says that, uh, you know, that the church, instead of getting a building, that they ended up giving all that money to uh, missions. I said, well, that reflects a lot about the church and the church's heart. I said, that's pretty awesome. And, uh, and so we were talking and then he got us, got to talking about the tithe. And I said, well, you know, in the Bible, the tithe isn't 10%. The Bible in the old Testament is up to 34% because you have three tithes in a year. And then you have a gleaning where they would actually round off their, their crops so that the poor and the homeless could have the corners of all their fields, which would be another two to 4%. So on average, the average Jewish person gave up to 30 plus percent of their yearly income to the kingdom. So if we were going to religiously pound the pulpit say give your tithe we'd be asking for 30 percent. and i said well that's not even in the new testament i said in the new testament it's more of a heart of generosity while the tithe is not the ceiling which we hope to reach it's the floor on which we walk and i man and i said it's it's a life of being generous and trusting the lord for our possessions and knowing i said here's the key to being a generous person this was in the middle of chase bank i thought man i could unleash on this guy because he's a banker and uh 
you know, he, I, you know, I figured I could talk money to a guy who spends the, his whole day talking about money. So I said, I said, the key to being generous is this, is understanding that God doesn't own 10% or 20% or 30%. God owns 100% of what you have. And when God gives you something to be a steward of, and he says, now be generous with it, it should be quite easy for us to do that because it's not ours. If I gave you $100 and said, give it away to somebody homeless, you'd be like, yeah. You'd be like, you would have no, well, I don't know. You know. You'd be generous because it's not yours. But you know what? What you have, that paycheck you brought home, it's not yours. It's the Lord's. So I told him that. And I was just, in, you know, the, the teller there who was behind, who was in front of him because he's a banker. She was doing the transactions. Her mind was probably like blowing, you know, because, you know, this whole conversation, she's not a church going girl. We talked about Christ and stuff. So the week later, this last week, a couple of days ago, I went in to make last, this past week's deposit and I'm in line and he comes up to me and he says, guess what? Middle of the, middle of the bank. People are in line. He goes, guess what? I said, what? He goes, because of you. Because of what you said, that day I went home and I adjusted my auto bill pay to make sure that I gave to my church regularly, not just every now and then. I said, man, what you told me, all because of you, I went home, talked to my wife, we looked through some scriptures, and we immediately set up bill pay. Now, we're, there's a line here, right? And I'm just trying to do my transaction, and I'm like... So I started talking about what scriptures are you reading and, you know, be, be sure that it's an act of worship and not uh, that it's a, get done out of, out of cheerful giving, not out of compulsion. And, you know, and all that to say is that this is a man who was not afraid to talk about finances and had a heart for Jesus. And when he understood God's word, it made him a more generous person. So the only reason I shared that with you is we don't normally give these little money pep talks on Sunday morning, but my wife is like, man, you got to share that story because it's really unique. In the middle of a bank, and you could tell as he was talking about the Bible, he was like uh, 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 getting a little nervous because the crowd was getting bigger uh, in the middle of the, uh, so it was cool. Anyhow, so I thought that was, uh, that's all I got to say. So uh, let's pray <laughs> and uh, pray that God would use what you give to, uh, to honor them and bless the kingdom. God, thank you so much for your generosity that you give to us uh, blessings that God are amazing. God, help us to be faithful and generous with them uh, in the world and to the kingdom and those around us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.